1: My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends all right well welcome all to our second webinar folks are rolling in glad to see everybody here um i'm here with jack jenkins a friend and colleague and known jack for a while Uh, before we get started just to let you know this webcast is uh sponsored uh and uh encouraged by the adult education program at first presbyterian church in palo alto as well as its partnership with the podcast that i do so you're going to get a webcast visual version as well as you'll get the podcast. Um, we're excited. I'm really grateful for uh, Derek Akuchi who's here, who's going to be in the chat room. If you have any questions about chats, um, you can put them in there. I'm not going to monitor the chat room, so Derek will let me know if there's anything going on. And if you have any questions, put them in the Q&A, and uh, we'll get to those as we go. But uh, first, uh, welcome, Jack. Thank you for being here. Glad.
2: Thanks so much yeah, for having yeah. me. Yeah, uh, um,
1: as I do with all my guests on, on any show, so I, I I could put together one of those flowery kind of uh, introductions. But tell us about Jack. Who who is Jack? What do we need to know? Where'd you grow up? What are important, exciting, maybe even unique, weird, strange things about you? <laughs> Go for it.
2: Um. So hi. I'm Jack. Um. Jack Jiggins. I'm originally. I was technically born in Washington D.C., but I grew up in. Aiken, South Carolina, um, and in Trinity Presbytery. Uh, Also went to college there at Presbyterian College. Um, You know, my Presbyterian cred, I I briefly worked at Montreat. I uh, have served on national committees, the Journal Nominating Committee. I've known Bruce for a long time. Um, I, After college, I uh, did a stint in politics. I talk about it a little bit in the book. I worked in campaigns, including. Obama's, and then I went to Divinity School, and it was there that I kind of um, found this fascination with, with you know, religion, politics, and then eventually journalism. Mm-hmm. And I uh, found an intersection of them um, around my second year in Div School, and then ended up interning at Religion News Service, um, which was a great place to start. And then uh, after that, um, when I went to Washington, D.C., I ended up working at Think Progress, which was this uh, news blog run by the Center for American Progress and their. You know, legally, their Center for American Progress Action Fund, and I was their one and only religion reporter, mm. and in which I covered um, both the religious right and, for lack of a better term, what is often called the religious left. And then uh, a couple years ago, about two and a half years ago now, um, RNS came back into my life and, and poached me back, and now I am a national reporter with the religion news service here in DC. Um, as far as other things about me, I, uh, I also play harmonica and ukulele. Um, I have annoyed people with those instruments for many years. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's I have written many a terrible song that I will share with no one. Um, but, uh, that is, that is one of the few things that I'm willing to share about me. That's um, that is unusual.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, Jack, I think you and I met at Montreat, which Montreat is a, a conference center, Presbyterian Church USA conference center in Montreat, North Carolina, near Black Mountain. But isn't
2: that where we met? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And
1: you were in college, right?
2: I was. At I that was. Point? At the, time.
1: Yeah. the blue hose, the mighty blue hose Presbyterian College. There
2: you go. I don't know how many I I don't even know if I've told you this. I remember watching your election as moderator. I was in the campaign office on the Obama campaign, <laughs> hovering over my computer late at night. And I was like, guys, the election. They're like, it's not for like three or four months. I was like, no, there's no." no, no. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still expecting back. my letter from Obama to thank me for kind of paving the way so that he could be like, you know, I don't, I don't understand what's going on, why that hasn't come yet, but whatever, I'll, I'll get over it. Um, again, so I'm, I'm so glad for you to be on. Um, before we dive into the book, though, uh, because we're going to post this webinar right, like, I'm going to try to edit it and get it out today. Um, right before this, you know, Jack was a few minutes late, and I'm like, hey man, where are you? And he's like, there's news happening, and I've been on getting ready for this, so I didn't see any news. Tell us kind of the breaking news today. What, what has been going on with our, our leader of the country?
2: Uh, so within the last hour, um, the President of the United States held a press conference in which he declared that uh, houses of worship are now essential and that they are, and they provide essential services. And what he means by that is he's calling on governors to allow for them to worship to open up beginning this weekend. And this is, I'm curious for a number of reasons, one of which is that the Washington Post reported earlier this week that one, um, the reason that the Centers for Di- Disease Prevention and Control um, hadn't released guidelines for faith communities as they did for businesses and other groups earlier this week. Um, is because they got into an internal fight with the White House, who wanted fewer restrictions on faith communities. And so the president, during the same press conference today, announced that the CDC guidelines would be coming out. And he also said that if governors didn't do this, didn't didn't allow for faith communities to open up, that he would override them. And the thing is, we don't. There's a giant question mark as to whether or not the president has the legal authority to override. Um, isn't isn't that the government. giant
1: question mark so, over many of the things that he says he's gonna do is like
2: but can you like
1: like there's one thing to say i'm just gonna do this and then other people are like but can you i mean so uh, <laughs> did he give did he give any restrictions to say of anything or just like just just open
2: so i what i haven't seen yet are the cdc guidelines specifically okay. so i'm not sure what the guidelines themselves would include um and and it you know it's unclear whether they would be really restrictive or whether they would just be like worship you know as you see fit. As you know, what's curious about this is we know that faith communities and worship services in particular have been have, have, have been the center for many um, instances of the disease spreading. I mean, even in yeah. uh, Sac, um, Sacramento County in California, for a while, there a third of their cases all came from one worshiping community. And and it's one of those things where it's unclear. Whether or not um, they would have enough restrictions to help, you know, I- I- even lessen the spread of the violence of the of the virus, much less stop the spread of the virus in a worship context, or as I've heard many faith leaders mention, even if they if they are allowed to open, if they have all of these restrictions that they're required to abide by, whether it's even worth it, because there's just like so many different things that a faith leader would have to do to even hold worship. Um, but it also comes in the wake in a, a battle in Minnesota where you have um, uh, Lutheran churches who I believe are from the Missouri Synod of the um, Lutheran Church, as well as um, Catholic churches that are going to defy the governor and continue to worship. So it's this back and forth. And meanwhile, you've got progressive faith leaders who are actually arguing that not only should churches not open, but businesses shouldn't open either. So it's in, I'm walking right into this ongoing debate. Yeah. Um, across the country
1: it is not boring time for you uh religion and faith writers is it, it
2: no no it's not it's not, <laughs> not
1: a, like well i mean i you know i think we've been in the conversations i've been having it really is for me as i think about the church that i lead first presbyterian you know the the idea of bringing people back it, the thing we miss the most what i've been hearing across the board for on zoom or pre-recorded whatever people are doing is they miss singing together and they miss touching and we're going to bring people back in and tell them the two things that we miss the most you can't do. And it just feels, it almost feels cruel. And then on top of that, I've watching friends who are trying to figure out how to open up their churches and then they've already done it. Just the mechanisms of trying to keep a worship space safe. You're not doing communion. You have to have a one way walking direction masks separation reservations that have people having to take it just it feels exhausting hearing some of what people are having to do it's just it's it's just wild well never uh never a dull moment with our uh leadership these days but let's get to your book so um and you know i've written a few books and uh i'm always i always giggle when my friends say to me uh, they read it and they're like huh it was really good as if (laughs) It wasn't going to be, But but I, but every time I read a book by a friend or somebody I know, I'm like, huh, that's really good. And it's the same kind of thing. And it's not at all like I didn't expect it to be, but it's like, huh, I know a person that does this. So, um, I hope many of you have read this, um, uh, read it, but, um, would, uh, highly, highly, highly encourage you to, to buy this book. And we can share the link in the chat room, but, um, um, this is such a great read. I mean, it, it, uh, I saw somebody tweet out that like, it was a really quick read and not in a, gosh, it was so easy. I just read through it, but it, um, you write in a really, uh, in a narrative way that just kind of takes us through it and it's going. And, uh, you know, I, I, there are some books out there that I just, they're so, um, intense and dense that I, yeah. I don't get anything out of them. I can't get it. This was, um, this was great. So kudos. Thank you. To, um, wonderful but let's i uh, have a couple of questions Thanks. for you and then we'll also as you again if you are listening to this please go ahead and pop your questions in the Q&A and and we'll 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 sprinkle those in as we go but um let me ask you first i know there's been some controversy on the twitters and some other people <laughs> as they're reading this and you know folks get tied up so much in semantics and all that and you're very clear at the beginning of the book that you use progressive left liberal kind of interchangeably but there's, uh, there's the question that, is, is there this left that you're describing? Like, what, like how, do you, how do you claim to say that there's like, there is a left, you know, religious community? I mean, talk a little bit about that controversy. And then how do you get
2: to determining who that is, what that means? Um, yeah, so go for it. Yeah, no, I think it's an important question. It's, it's why well, I put it at the front of the book is that there's this, there's this pre-debate before we can even talk about the religious left, which is what is the religious left and who counts. And um, there was a controversy on Twitter, not last um, weekend, but the week before that, um, a New York Times writer kind of claimed that there was no religious left. And then a a debate ensued in which it was unclear what precisely she was referring to. And what kind of came out of that is some things I've heard from activists for quite some time, which is that many of the people I chronicle in my book actually reject the term religious left, but for very different reasons. So for instance, William Barber rejects it because he thinks it's too puny is the yeah, word he uses. I love that he word, kind of...
1: it's so puny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and part of that, for your mother activist, is this aversion to it being a mere image of the religious right that they, they kind of abhorred the tactics and the strategies of the religious right. And in the affiliation, even rhetorically with that term, they feel that it could be, you know, misconstrued or just doesn't sit right. Others um, are are kind of argue that the left has a very specific definition. It's been debated throughout history, but there are those who argue that, you know, only people who count as the The left are those who are, say, democratic socialists or those who support single payer health care or those who support a very specific subset of policies. And and then there are those who argue that the religious left um, should be as broad as possible. And that includes everyone from people who might even be in um, the Republican Party to those who would sign up for the DSA. And, and I think from where I sat, it was so obvious that there was, when you talk about the religious right, it also has some elements of intellectual diversity in terms of political spectrums. And the religious left, you know, has kind of operated as this coalition of coalitions within the broader umbrella of the left. And so I say that because my argument kind of implicitly in the book is that whereas the religious right has worked very hard over the course of decades to create this kind of machine politics top down structure um, that has relatively little diversity when compared to the religious left in terms of racial diversity, religious diversity, theological diversity um, and and it operates in this kind of monolithic way and shows up in a big way on election day, the religious left kind of reflects the modern left, which is far more diverse racially, religiously, ideologically. And kind of, you know, is often really good at the art of protest because that is the vehicle through which um, communities that often don't have direct access to power can still influence power. And so the religious stuff kind of pokes in these different parts of the left. It shows up in d- different movements and sometimes leads them, but it's not the same structure of the religious right because nothing on the left is like the religious right. Um, and I say all that because I know the terms themselves are disputed and that is a long leftist tradition. Um, but I, my ultimate argument is that if there is a religious left, which I think there is, uh, it looks and acts and breathes and even worships differently quite often than the religious right.
1: Hmm. That's great. I mean, I love the idea, of kind of thinking about this as the modern left. So do you, do you think there's still, so two questions that come out of this. Is there still any kind of litmus test? Like, do, do you get a sense that like, is there anything that uh, somebody who might consider them part of the left, if they were to believe or sit in the space, a space, a good majority of the others would be like, no, 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 you know, you're not part of this. Um, and, and then the second question would be, I've always felt like left liberal progressive just shifts depending on kind of like when people are pining for kind of old school Republicans as this liberal progressive voice compared to where we are now. It, it feels weird. So it's mm-hmm. been some kind of shift. And then is, is there any kind of, are there bounds to what the left, uh, how you would define um, the religious left?
2: So uh, I can cheat and, and argue about this very precise political moment, which is that um, there is a reason that there is a joke on the internet um, where, you know, this meme where whenever someone who is unlikely and unlikely, you know, a conservative or something like that comes out strong and criticizes Trump, the quote is "Welcome to the Resistance," <laughs> right? And, and and the adage is, and I and I think that speaks yeah. of a lot of what's happening because one of the things I kind of argue in the book is that the religious left predates you know, the, the religious left has existed in various forms throughout American history. Sure. Period. Sure. The modern religious left, you know, predates Trump as well, and right. it's you know, bit five to fifteen years old. The kind of movements that I trace in uh, the book, but there was this catapulting, this this energizing of this movement after the election of Donald Trump because so many saw him as not only an existential threat to the country, but often a very real practical threat to their faith communities. Um, And so what that has meant is that while the left is an ideological construct, uh, definitely, you know, there are people who are policing different boundaries in there. I think one of the things that's unified it in this time is opposition to the Trump administration and its policies. And so while they might not call someone like Russell Moore a part of the left, they might call him a de facto member of the resistance. Russell Moore, by the way, is the head of the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, because during 2016, he was deeply critical of Donald Trump in public repeatedly. And so there might be some who say, well, we have allies for now. So they might, they might not use the word left, but they would call them part of the resistance. And in this one political moment, the difference is difficult to discern um, until if and when uh, Democrats um, reclaim power.
1: Right, huh. That's great. I, 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 just, I just find kind of, I get myself drawn into that rhetoric a little bit, sometimes in the semantics of it. And then there's other times I'm like, come on, there's just like, you just get a vibe. This is kind of where, aren't we all kind of in this space? And, and that for me, was I like talk about, is like there's, there's a difference between kind of solidarity and like just pure agreement, right? So if I can have solidarity yeah. with a wider group of people, it doesn't mean I have to agree with every single position or tactic, because I don't agree with every tactic that in fact we need them all um, but that just right. helps me step out of this the semantic argument of well what's what's progressive what's liberal what's you know because i've had conservatives tell me well i'm progressive i'm like okay you're going to have to unpack that for me it's <laughs> like well but as i think about worship i do new things i'm like okay if you want to like find the one thing where you're moving forward that's great but i you know you're not part of the progressive you know uh, you don't get your copy of the Liberal agenda mailed to yeah. you. Uh, <laughs> unlike mine. I, I know we've uh, the rest of us have all got ours. Oh no. Uh, no. Yes. Uh, so, t- so I'm I'm interested because I, I I know that you worked with Obama's campaign, and so you mm-hmm. got to kind of see through all of this. But um, talk a little bit about how that, how his uh, campaign, not only you know, has he dealt with a lot of um, having to speak about faith differently, and then some of the things that he had to deal with. How how is Obama? How did his presidency and his campaign kind of shift? the mainstream presence of, of, of faith and how we talk about it today?
2: Yeah, I think it's an important question because it's one of those things that actually kind of often goes under acknowledged was that um, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign for president had one of the largest faith outreach efforts, not just of any Democrat in the last few decades, but really of any um, presidential candidate in quite some time. He had, you know, a ton of staff dedicated to that and volunteers dedicated to that project. And while that might seem, you know, somewhat interesting, if you like, you know, or unusual, if you look back at his um, political career, it was something that he kind of claimed really early on. I mean, you know, the the Audacity of Hope, the the name of one of his books was a direct reference to a sermon from Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was his pastor at the time. And he had an entire chapter of that book dedicated specifically to discussing religion. And when I spoke to his um, former, you know, faith confidants, including Joshua Dubois, who ended up writing, uh, running the White House's faith outreach um, or faith office. He talked about how they genuinely saw this as a distinctive thing that Barack Obama could bring to, um, you know, the political, the body politic is this sensitivity towards and fluency in faith speak. And so that was why you saw, you know, throughout his 2008 campaign, really concerted efforts to court certain pastors, for instance, in South Carolina, as as well as outreach um, to some Muslim Americans, as well as outreach to Jewish Americans, and really just this fluency of God talk that he had that um, was distinct from many of his competitors. And he brought it with him into the White House as well, because when he got there, he not only continued the faith office in the White House that was formed underneath the Bush administration; he expanded it, arguably. But what he did in in addition to that was also help outline very specific rules and regulations for that um, office that the Bush administration had kind of left unconfirmed undis- um, un, you know confirmed and uncodified. But what in, in so doing, he then developed these committees that often had a slate of progressive faith leaders on them that would co- show up and have these. Conference calls, and it was done very differently than the current administration does this. I should note, actually, that the, the Trump administration actually basically disbanded this office. Um, but the but that that was this sort of um, lifting up of and legitimization of the religious left and many of its leaders. And as I note in the book, and particularly in the first chapter, that effort, in combination and in tandem with some folks um, such as the Center for American Progress and John Podesta and a bunch of Catholic activists paid dividends when he became president because it was a huge reason why he was able to pass the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually actually credits Catholic nuns with helping get it across the finish line at the end of the day. And so one of the legacies that he's left in D.C. and among Democrats is this insistence on taking faith seriously, not just as a thing for ethical reasons or for personal reasons, but because it also can be efficacious in a political way um, both in getting pol- legislation passed and at the ball- ballot box on election day.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I know that for me, it, it was, I, I was I, I was of mixed emotion when I started hearing about how those offices were going to expand or people were placed into them, because I kind of felt like I was against it when Bush did it. Like right. this whole thousand points of light It started way back and like, we're still going to, I was like, ah, but then, so I I am still a little torn. It's like, well, when I like my guys in there and my folks are in there, it's great. (laughs) Like go for it. But if I don't like what you're doing. So, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, I will, I'll share that I even applied for one of those positions at one point and I made it through the first, I made it through the first round of security with the white house and then they did a hiring freeze. So, you know, that was years, years ago, obviously. But you know, I, I was know like, oh, have I, <laughs> I, I should have worked anyway. Um, but I mean, I, so, but I did, I was torn about that a little bit. It's like, okay, so how do we, how do we still have that conversation about uh, the separation of church and state, faith and politics, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, did he get much of that at all? I mean, was there, you know, like, what, what was that about? Because certainly the conservative church weren't going to affirm his version of the gospel and how he presented the faith. But I'm sure there were many
2: on the more even further left, like, why are we even still doing that? I mean, oh, yeah. did, I mean how did he deal the, with the, that? There were lawsuits um, about the faith office under the Obama administration from um, organizations that, that that are dedicated to the uh, separation of church and state. And I believe, trust would verify, um, that it was the Freedom <laughs> from Religion Foundation that found, that, that um Uh, that that launched one of those um, lawsuits, or at least threatened one. Uh, uh. Um, But and so I know that and there was also this divide that was way more prevalent uh, in the Obama era than I've seen recently, which is that you would see quite frequently this deep um, frustration among more secular liberals and progressives with you know, uh, faith being preached from a podium as opposed to a pulpit. I mean, there was this deep antipathy to that. In fact, there was polls that showed for a long time that the religiously unaffiliated, which is a category that includes atheists and agnostics, but also a lot of people who might pray daily or, you know, just don't affiliate with one faith or another, um, that would really kind of congeal that into one cohesive group was one, you know, stalwartly progressive on many policies, but also um, a, a, you know, a deep discomfort with um, faith in a political context. What's been interesting is since Trump got elected, a lot of that debate has quieted down a little bit. And since, like, we're all in this together, and you know, that there are people who are showing up at each other's things to try to, you know, that the secular society will be there alongside a faith leader as long as it's you know oriented towards critiquing Trump. The question is whether or not those same debates will arise again were Joe Biden to be elected um, president, you know, come November. Um, and I, I would expect quite. Quite honestly, that those um, same kinds of critiques and lawsuits will again show up if he were to be elected, because right. I think a lot of those- com- those organizations remain uncomfortable with that, and while they appreciated that the Obama administration set a lot of things in stone about like what the faith office could or couldn't do, and they allowed for a lot of public scrutiny, which you don't see under the trump administration at all what um what. I- what? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just just as an aside, I mean, the faith office that was created under Bush and expanded under Obama is gone. They've created a new initiative whose uh, import and what they do is actually wildly unclear. And what happens instead is there's often just a rotating band of faith leaders that informally advise the president, President Trump. Um, with no direct oversight in terms of you know sunshine laws or chronicling their conversations, whereas under the Obama administration, a lot of the faith office meetings were actually had like a live speakerphone on the entire time that was and allowed for public comment. So that just to give you an idea of how this has been run, and there's been criticisms of both of those systems.
1: Sure, I am shocked, Jack. Totally shocked that there is not transparency uh in the trump administration just oh my gosh i'm i i do not know if i can go on the rest of the day uh and, and especially watching who he's pulling in as as advisors i mean good lord i don't even recognize the faith with which they speak and i would never i and i'm one of those i will never say that that somebody is not christian if they claim that in their life uh, if that's their tradition, but I will say that their gospel is not as good as the one that some of us would proclaim, and that oh. um, will constantly be. Um, I, I, I sit in that space confidently, uh, but let me let me ask you. Let's as long as we're talking about um, conservative Christians, like what, what's your take on why? I mean, I know this this is a big question, but every once in a while, I trick myself into thinking this is going to be the time, like this act of this president is going to be the one that is too much for even not hugely conservative, but just some of my conservative evangelical friends, but it doesn't seem to be like, it doesn't seem like we're waiting for this tipping point, this tipping point, this tipping point, and it never seems to come. Hmm. What is that about? Like, why is that part of the church still so invested in this present?
2: So uh, this, is, this is the question that religion reporters like myself have like wrestled with and been asked like over and over and over again. You're going to give like, us
1: the definitive answer right now.
2: <laughs> well, well, I, think, well the re- I think the reality is we have started to figure out some reason okay. and, they're, and they're overlapping and distinct at the same time. So for some evangelicals, um, there's a raw transactional nature to this. Uh, and we're talking about primarily, not exclusively, but primarily white evangelical Protestants for whom they see this president, while they may not agree with his rhetoric or even some of his approaches to politics, they do agree with his policy proposals, You know, particularly including, but not limited to, putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court and in federal benches as well. That has been a long standing goal of um, you know evangelical Protestants in the, who are politicized for quite some time. So there's some who, for whom this is just a raw transactional relationship. And then you have this element that it, you, know, you do have an element of evangelicals for whom have always been uncomfortable with Trump and maybe they held their nose and voted for him. And it's actually an open question whether or not that group, which admittedly is relatively small, um, but, we're, but his margins in 2016 weren't very large. Um, but there is an open question about whether that group uh, come 2020 either will vote for someone else or even more likely just stay home and not vote at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that element where there may have been some quiet shifting that we've seen a little bit of up and down in white evangelical support. And maybe that's one or two percentage points. But again, that could make a difference on election day, depending. But the big one, I think, and what um, sociologists like Andrew Whitehead um, have been studying for some time is the influence of Christian nationalism, which is Less an a theology and more of an identity. It's this marriage of uh, an American flag and a Bible. This identity of you know being a Christian in the United States of America. It's answering the question, "Do you think America should be a Christian na- nation?" With a hearty yes, um, and overlapping that onto your political identity. And Trump very intentionally and very repeatedly played into that during his campaign. And since he became president, he has repeatedly, you know, said things like, we don't worship government, we worship God, right? Like, that's almost an old school version of Christian nationalism from the 1930s and 40s that he's resurrecting. It's this appeal to um, when, he, when he goes and hugs an American flag, right? <laughs> and, and, um, and, and there's a reason that, like, he'll visit disaster areas and um, some communities in the Southeast and, in, you know, uh, uh, even visit churches where people will hand him their Bible to sign it. Yeah, I see that, and 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 I think that that speaks to this very specific. And again, it, 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 there are some um, like Roy Moore who ran for Senate in Alabama mm-hmm. against Doug Jones and lost for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, uh, but he is kind of this more ardent Christian nationalist that actually tries to back it up with a very particular reading of history and theology and there are some people who make that argument and Robert Jeffress who's one of the um who's a pastor in Texas who's one of the president's closest faith advisors also.
0: all around the world poverty is stealing choices from kids it's time to give those choices back introducing chosen world vision's new invitation to sponsorship for the first time kids have the power to choose their own sponsors now the choice is theirs, the choice to take hold of their future, and even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org chosen. When you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence
1: continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard.
0: We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on.
2: How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com. So preaches about how America is a Christian nation and makes it similar version of history and theology. But a lot of people, it's just the idea that to be American is to be Christian and to be Christian is to be a very specific kind of Christian and, um, and Trump just plays into that. And they're going to vote for him for the identity reason, not necessarily because he, he checked all the boxes of white evangelicalism that, you know, might've been codified at Wheaton college or something like
1: that. Right. I mean, it kind of, it kind of feels like that's where this election is headed for those of us that maybe Biden wasn't our primary candidate. And we like that that we're, we're voting about ideology, much more than the candidate, it's almost where all or a lot of folks, not all, you know, are 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 dismissing some of the person in order to know that there's a much greater ideology and structure and thinking behind it that gets elected into the office, right? Um, it, uh, unlike I think when when Obama was running, you were like it was Obama, like I, there were fo- those of us that were, it, you know, he was inspiring us that right. that seems to vary different I get it I just I don't know what to do with that it just doesn't feel quite as inspiring and moving to mm-hmm. to to experience that but I mean what have, what have you been seeing on kind of in the, in the in the elections now and kind of as as the primaries are moving forward between the two candidates and, and how the religious communities are are using this time now to kind of continue to get the word out what's what's been going on there
2: so I think that there's been, um, the, the Democratic primary was fascinating this year. And um, it was those I, I was writing the book while it was happening. And mm-hmm. so I would have been writing about these movements and thinking, and you know, I'm kind of writing these more um, basically conjecture at the end of these chapters, being like, and I think this is probably going to show up in the campaigns. And then it, it absolutely did, right? Like multiple candidates, including Elizabeth Warren, as well as Julian Castro, visited um, people who were in sanctuary as part of the new sanctuary movement which i chronicle in the book um when uh the poor people's campaign headed up by reverend liz theo harris and um reverend william barber that you know when they had their um, presidential candidates for them they had nine candidates i know that was wild uh, including a biden bernie sanders elizabeth warren kamala harris like julian it was supposed to be 10 candidates but julian castro missed his flight like it was like one of those things where it was but in the when netroots nation this established liberal gathering had their candidates for them, they only got four candidates ah. there. And ah. so it kind of showed the growing power of these faith-based activists and what they had kind of accrued during the resistance movement under Trump because they were, you know, they were so proficient um, and prolific in their activism. And then you had candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris who were dropping faith into like, either their announcement speeches or their stump speeches. You had some people like Pete Buttigieg who actually started using the term religious left quite frequently, you had Elizabeth Warren who was praying with her pastor before every single debate um, and actually workshopped her her faith message at the Festival of Homiletics two years ago. Um, And so you saw a whole lot of religious rhetoric. And there was one thing that I thought was interesting that flew under the radar, um, which transitions us into the general election, which is that Joe Biden was the first to hire a state-specific faith outreach director for South Carolina. Mm-hmm. in August of last year. And by December, he had the endorsement of 100 faith leaders just in that state. And there's a lot of things going on there, but I don't think it's unrelated to the success that he had, particularly in that state. And I would be surprised if in the general election he doesn't um, continue to try to you know, mimic some of the strategies that Obama used in 2008. And this time, what's interesting is that the Democratic Party, who did not have a faith outreach director in 2016, um, has now hired one for twenty twenty. It's the person they originally had in two thousand and twelve. They've now rehired that person back to to take this seriously. Um, and so I think it says something that you have these 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 people that are now paid to do faith outreach um, and you know for the Democratic Party. Because when you look really far down at the end at election day, I think from the perspective of the the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign. You, know, you really got to use a scalpel, not a hammer when it comes to faith outreach, because you're talking about specific communities, right? So like in Michigan, Trump barely won Michigan in 2016. And, you know, the Muslim American population right outside of Detroit in Dearborn, Michigan is significant. And, you know, they were first courted by George W. Bush uh, hmm. back in 2000. And now, you know, Democrats, you know, heavily court those, those populations. Bernie Sanders has, you know, for two, two cycles running done that. And now they're, they're probably going to mimic that again. This go round. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Biden leans into his own Catholicism to try to talk to Catholics in the Rust Belt, particularly white working class Catholics in the Rust Belt. And finally, there's one demographic that we have started seeing a lot of act, um, action around, and that's Hispanic Protestants, hmm. who, um, who are arguably one of the last swing votes in the country, because when polled, they often lean left on issues such as climate change, immigration reform, but right on issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. And, uh, and they're not a, a lock for either community. And while they're not a huge subset of the population, they do have sizable um, um, churches in places like Florida and Ohio. So it wouldn't be surprised if you see specific outreach to those communities as well. Um, so all of that's part of a, a broad attack, I mean, a, a plan of attack for um, both campaigns to try to both, you know, uh, make sure they attack the base, you know, to try to a- attract the um the Democrat and on the Democratic end these kind of religious left you know truly progressive um uh, people of faith who really kind of showed up for instance to that poor people's campaign presidential candidates form and also maybe try to pull over some moderates across the aisle right
1: great. Man, that's great stuff. That is good. You, I mean, you, um, folks who are listening to this, feel free to drop some questions into the Q and I'll monitor that for uh, questions if you have for uh, Jack as he's going. But I'm going to keep going. There's lots of stuff to talk about. Even you mentioned now the Poor People's Campaign a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Big mass rally June 20th. A bunch of us are going to be participating in that. Um, was obviously supposed to be live March on DC, but it'll be online. I'm fascinated to see how many people they're going to. I think this evening is going to be massive. Uh, and you talk about uh, uh, the Reverend Doctors, Liz Theoharis and uh, William Barber, um, uh, uh, in, in kind of how they've recaptured some movement and this activism that st- started with Moral Mondays and all that. Talk about your interaction with uh, um, uh, Dr. Barber and kind of getting kind of how he moved. And then we'll talk a little bit about Liz, who's a... a a common Presbyterian for us. So, uh, but uh, I I loved learning a little bit more about William Barber's story. I didn't really know the, the kind of the earlier stages
2: of, of how he came to be. So talk about William Barber for a little bit. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting figure and he's arguably, you know, again, he rejects the term religious left, but if people use the term anyway, he's arguably the, the most prominent member of that community of at least prominent leader um and he got his you know start in activism you know pretty early on but you know in the most notable sense in north carolina around 2013-2014 because um that was a time when because of the tea party wave a uh deeply conservative legislator you know swept into power and the governor's mansion in that state so much so that it made north carolina disproportionately conservative at the political level compared to other southern states which had not always been the case It was usually more purple Um, And it became such, you know, uh, this was more existential threat to so many of the more progressive or even just moderate liberal goals that wanted to be that people wanted to achieve in that state, that there was giant pushback to that. And William Barber had already kind of formulated some activism around the the HK on J Street. There was like this very early kind of mass activism that he had worked with. He was, you know, head of the NAACP at the time in the state. And he kind of used some of the things that he learned from that experience, and it was particularly a, an approach called fusion organizing, which kind of basically says it's, it 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 has resonance with the term intersectionality. It's this idea that lots of different groups who might have different agendas might be equally affected by a negative force, um, and that they can organize together for common cause. And so he started the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, where it was this. Massive gathering in front of the a state house there every Monday where people would get arrested and they just kept expanding the number of people who would get arrested every time. And those people who were getting arrested were off, often meant to represent specific grievances, you know, people who couldn't vote or uh, who had difficulty voting or people who were um, disproportionately impacted by healthcare concerns or housing concerns or the environment. And then they would gather these crowds alongside, you know, the the state house to kind of gather in solidarity. And they grew larger and larger and larger until in 2013, it was declared the largest liberal protest in the country that year was the Moral Mondays protest led by primarily people of faith. And they kept that up for a few years. And on 2016, which was a dark day for a lot of Democrats on election day, the one bright spot for Democrats was the election of a Democrat to be ahead to the governor of North Carolina and many people credited the Moral Mondays movement with that. And by that point, William Barber was, um, according to the people I spoke with, already in conversation with some of the national campaigns and had spoken at the 2016 Democratic National Convention to a standing ovation. And so from there, and during that time period, during that kind of transition out of the Moral Mondays movement and into this you know, this Trump era where he called one of his um, you know, confidants and said, America is North Carolina now. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing a similar existential threat at a national level as opposed to just the state level um, was when he kind of took on the mantle along with Liz Theoharis of uh, the Poor Peoples campaign. This, the last campaign of Martin Luther King before he was assassinated, he's now picked up that torch to mirror it again uh, at the national level here in, um, you know, in 2020, 2018, um, and in that era. And, and what you see from that is this massive mobilization that's kind of all things to all people right now. In a lot of ways, it, it's people, some other activists argue that it's too disparate, but, yeah. at, this, but at the same time, what it has given um, the leadership of that movement is this sort of saliency and credibility within multiple movements at once. And if you take up, if you, and if you you know you you examine the fusion organizing that that uh, Reverend Barber invests in, you see that that's a very strategic choice. It's this idea that connect these disparate movements into one collective outcry and one collective voice that could have an impact on an election or on a piece of legislation.
1: Right. Yeah. I I, I I've. I remember obviously the lot of Presbyterians in North Carolina, friends with on and watching this, it really felt like this growing engagement in moral Mondays. And I'd start to see them headed to moral Monday, headed to more. And it's like, you could, mm-hmm. you could watch it almost in real time grow with folks who like, were, were progressive, but they weren't like, Oh really? You're, you're like, they wouldn't be the folks first running to the street to a protest, but it just felt like there was so much power and, it felt like there was real movement building going on that folks just started moving. I thought it was really amazing. And and I love, thank you for sharing a little bit about, I didn't, I never knew the story about how um, William Barber and Liz, Theo Harris kind of met and connected. Cause I was like, this yes. is such an odd, like what's how did these two like
2: connect? different trajectories? It, it just, the same yeah, point. It's yeah. just like,
1: wow. In New York. Okay. Uh, and i are really excited. If you are listening to this, we have Liz, the Harris on, um, we're not doing a, a webinar every Friday, but we just Liz had a break in her schedule, and so we have her next Friday. So we'll talk a little bit about that. If you read the book, there is one little secret that uh, Jack outs Liz about in her ordination process that I I, get, I did not know, and I will tease her about. <laughs> uh, but in any case, um, there is a couple questions that are coming up in the in the questions thing. So let's turn to a few of them um, from Wayne. The question is: Have you read the book "How the South Won the Civil War"? Have you read that?
2: I, I have read excerpts. I have not read the whole book. Oh, okay. I, will, I will cop to that.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, that, I don't know if you can answer this question, where she outlines the <laughs> long range development of the movement conservatives, yeah. AKA the religious right. So any thoughts I'm familiar about with the it? concept? Okay.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think that's relevant here. Um, I think the development and I would put it in conversation with Kevin Cruz's uh, One Nation Under, Under God. Is that the name of it? Kevin Cruz's book as okay. well. Um, and I think those Two books, if you want to kind of look at the development of the religious right and its connection to movement conservatives, conservatives, um, I think is a good kind of foundation to help understand how we got how we got the religious right that kind of rose in the eighties and nineties um, and their success in the Reagan era, in particular the 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 W. Bush era. Um, I think there's a lot to be pulled from that. I have again acknowledging that I have not read the book in full. A movement of conservatives comes up a lot here in the district. So, yes, I think that's a a, a useful book.
1: Okay, here's a question for you. Separation of church and state. What is an appropriate or non-appropriate role for the national prayer breakfast? Could you be, could a, and could a president be elected who doesn't say God bless America in a speech?
2: Those are two separate questions. Those are two separate Uh, (laughs) questions.
1: Either in any order you'd like. What do you think?
2: So... I, I, you may or may not know my my accidental expertise in the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, I don't. Uh, I, I,
1: I, remind I, me. Yeah. I'm, I'm so uh,
2: my I am I am in a Netflix documentary about it. Um, that's the that's. Oh, the that's thing. right. There, I uh, did know uh, about that. Yes. That's, that's and, right. and 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 the reason I'm in that is because last year, or that in 2018, there was a tension that was drawn to the fact that the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, I had started working on a story before any you know, of this came out, but I had there was this in- interesting thing about the national prayer breakfast where it's kind of led by this kind of amorphous group of people whose leadership structure is unclear. And there's all these like interesting tantalizing bits about like, you know, how they're, they, they believe in, they have a Christian identity, but it is often, you know, very close to power. Like the theology right. says you should be close to power to influence the influential. And what that has meant in practice is that at the national prayer breakfast and in particular, the Meetings that happen around the National Prayer Breakfast, there is this. Um, there's very little oversight from the government or from the press, where leaders from across the planet and and political leaders here in the United States are gathering. And and because there's so little odor oversight, there was a whole lot of potential for that to be um to, for that to be co opted by bad faith actors. Even if the National Prayer Breakfast team wasn't considered a bad faith actor. Uh, the, some of the people who might show up could be. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, one of the women, the, the women who was indicted um, for uh, trying to lobby on behalf of the Russian government. Oh, that's right. Registering um, as a foreign agent, which is illegal. Um, it's basically, you know, it's like being a spy. Uh, she tried to exploit the National Prayer Breakfast and was fairly successful at it, uh, Maria Butina. And, um, and so the National Prayer Breakfast was the mechanism through which that occurred. So what's interesting about that is that is also an annual event for presidents. They go every yeah. year to speak at this event. And, um, and, and Obama did it and Trump has done it. And uh, it was interesting because this past year, it almost felt like the prayer breakfast tried to course correct a little bit. They actually had some voices that seemed to de facto critique the president um, like mm. right before he spoke. And when he spoke, he had this very frustrated speech that he was giving. It was in the midst of his impeachment um, so there was like, you know, some, some animosity there. Um, it was like right after um, uh, impeachment stuff. And the, and they do have Democrats who are a component of this as well. But it ends up begging the question of whether you should have that gathering as the way to talk about faith or whether um, there would be a different gathering to talk about faith. And one thing that happened in the Obama era was he would shift some things where he would like recognize the National Day of Prayer, but actually hold like a different Easter vigil than you would see under the Bush administration, kind of breaking with tradition that way. So there's actually ample um, precedent for presidents to kind of do something a little different than their predecessor. Whether or not you get away with not going to the national prayer breakfast, though, is an open question. And I, I, I'm curious. I mean, I would assume that someone like Joe Biden would still do, uh, like, you know, participate in that tradition. But mm-hmm. I do know that there's now significantly more animosity towards that gathering because of the Maria Butina situation. Now, as to the second question of whether or not you can get a president who doesn't say, God bless America, I think that's theoretically possible. If they, um, but they <laughs> theoretically might- Theoretically
1: possible, all things
2: are- <laughs> Right, but like, if they use like a different phrase, because hmm. one of the things that people run into a lot is overt and out-and-out atheists um, are one of the uh, communities that have the, the biggest problem getting elected. There's, you know, if, if okay. when people rank their favorability- of a candidate if they're, you know, if, if, you know, they're Christian, if they're Muslim, if they're gay, um, below all of those is atheist.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And so um, now, you know, some, some candidates have kind of written that line before. When Bernie Sanders ran for president in 2016, he kind of got dodged questions about his faith a little bit. He would identify as Jewish, but then kind of appeal to this broader spirituality. In 2020, he actually kind of leaned into his Judaism quite frequently and, and, and produced videos of it. Um, but there is this question of whether or not an atheist could be elected president. And I would argue that right now, actually, I think it would be very difficult. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it would be one of those things where, you know, it would be a candidate that would have to be so attractive to the masses in other areas that they could, you know, look past atheism because apparently a deep abiding electoral bias against, um, atheists. Um, Whether that means you could be a a confessing Christian and there's not in your speeches with God bless America um, I did notice that actually several of the candidates who are running for president on the Democratic ticket this go round wouldn't say "God bless America" at the end of their speeches, and not that many people noticed. Yeah. So maybe culture has shifted enough where that particular phrase isn't a shibboleth that like lets you in or out of the White House. Um, but I will say that I do think it's a larger question about how um, the Democratic Party and the country writ large would encounter someone who a successful either atheist or non-religious candidate. There is there is one senator whose name I'm forgetting um who is uh, religiously unaffiliated um who was successful but but that's a very rare occurrence right. in Congress.
1: Right. Did they did the candidates change the phrase or did they just not say anything at all?
2: A couple of times I noticed candidates just like didn't include the kicker yeah. and sometimes they would change it. Ah. Um uh, I think like Castro would change it a little bit. Um, and actually, have a, like a, a faith lens around it. He often quoted his grandmother and a right. phrase she used to use in Spanish um, for him, and he would kind of close his speeches in that sometimes. Mm. Um, but the but you know the God bless America phrase verbatim wasn't always used by all of the candidates.
1: Right, right. Thank you. All right, we're I, I, this is amazing. We're kind of getting to the end already. This is a fast hour uh, with <laughs> you. So, but let me ask you. So, you, I was I was wondering as I was reading it and getting to the end, I was like, how far did you? It feels like everything's changing all the time. It's so quickly that uh, you know any book you write, like what does that look like in a year? Like how much yeah. how much staying power does it have? But you got pretty far to keep writing. Like you, you end them nineteen, or did you get to write into twenty?
2: I, I got to, they I edited until they made me stop, which is no, <laughs> right so. Like I I submitted <laughs> the manuscript like twenty nineteen. I was still shoving quotes in until like a few <laughs> months ago. Um, there's, there's the like difference of-
1: between there's the difference between you and I, Jack. I'm like, okay, I'm done editing the first time. Please do not send it back to me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. I, go ahead. No, I mean, like, it's is uh, is as a reporter. I mean, we, like, let me put it this way. So, I wrote that religious right chapter, and which I kind of talk about how Christian. There's a there's a there's a speaker in that chapter who kind of criticizes Christianity today right. for being kind of quiet about the Trump administration, and that was surprising to them. And then, then I submitted yes. the manuscript, and then the like the the editor chief Christianity <laughs> Today issues this you know op ed saying that he should be removed from office. Yeah. and so you're like you know it's there's these things constantly breaking, and um and so I think that was a big part of of, of why I kept adding stuff is I just wanted to m- be, make it as relevant as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, yeah.
1: So uh, so you're done with it. It's it's uh you know you're on this kind of like is there a a more interesting time to try to release a book than during pandemic shelter in place. <laughs> I mean, it's like we were talking a little bit. Like you don't have to travel, you get to do things like this. But at the same time, it seems like a rough time yeah. to try to release
2: a book. It's it's a rough time, but
1: but I'm glad but there you are. Thought. But here, any more safe yeah. and healthy and all those kind of things. Uh, but so since you've written it, I mean, what do you still want? Like, what do you if you if you were given it back and they said, okay, Jack, you get to shove a little bit more into this book. What are the? Are, is there anything that you're like? Oh, I wish I would. This needs to go in now i mean what, what are, Is there anything like that
2: yes um so i cheated and half shoved it into the epilogue but if i could go back <laughs> if i could go back and write another chapter it would be you know i chronicle these different movements from you know the the role of faith in the environmentalism and in climate change movement to you know immigrant rights movements um to you know racial justice movements I would if I could go back, I'd want to do a chapter on the role of faith in the gun violence prevention movement, Mm. Um, because that is storied. It is it is old and new. And there's a lot of activism in that space that has existed for quite some time that has gone unrecognized. Um, And and I I, I do show I mean, basically the epilogue is almost framed around some of those conversations um, because it takes place. At the um, Charleston, at the A.M.E. Church in Charleston, uh, Mother Emanuel, where there was the tragic shooting of nine African American worshippers in 2015 by white supremacists. and so I do kind of touch on some of these themes, but I would love to go back and kind of discuss how, like, when I went to the March for Life, um, you know, the the big um, anti-gun violence gathering that was you know organized in large part by these high schoolers out of Florida. I was struck by how many people were bused there by their churches or their synagogues or, you know, their, their, um, their mosques. Like people were bused there and brought there because this network of faith communities who were already deeply invested in this issue had really kind of, um, you know, had a groundswell of support for back in 2013, 2014. And then that reactivated um, after, you know, when, when those high schoolers got really involved. Involved. And so I'd love to chronicle some of that stuff as well.
1: Great, awesome, thank you. All right, well, we're almost at the end of our time. And as I do on all the podcasts, I ask three questions of every guest and I did preempt you a little bit so you may be thinking in the background. What are you listening to? What are you reading and what are you watching? So what are you reading these days?
2: Uh, so a few different things. I, I, my escapism uh, is, is the, the final part of the trilogy of um, John Scalzi's The, the Last Impero. Series, which is this spacefaring thing, religion <laughs> plays a prominent role. Okay. Um, and and it's it's all about like it, it, Scalzi is like this. He's like a funny author. He does science fiction that's funny. Um, and like there's this fusion of the it, it, there's no separation of church and state in this spacefaring <laughs> society. And um, and it's like this is entertaining kind of escapism thing. I'm also reading uh, reading Ezra Klein's Why wow, We're Polarized, mm. um, which because everyone in D.C. apparently is conscripted to read that book. Um, to talk about, you know, what it is and then, and then to critique it. Like the, like the cool thing to do is read Ezra's book and then like, you know, critique and say, it's not adequate enough. Um, which is, you know, which means it's still pretty interesting book. Right. Uh, so I'm definitely digging into that. Right. What, do you, what in are you, what are you, what are you listening
1: to? What do you, what podcast music? What are the things that, uh, get you through?
2: So the, the podcast, so I'm a giant nerd. I should acknowledge that for this everybody. Is, um, here. I think,
1: I think that's pretty clear, but you know, go ahead. Okay.
2: Okay. Fair, fair. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, that was advertised. <laughs> no, um, so I'm a giant nerd, and the, um, so there are, like, a couple of Star Wars podcasts that I had listened to, because I had, I, I I see your judgment, it's I, fine, whatever. It's not judgment,
1: it's it's uh, affirmation, it's... Yeah, sure, it's love, sure, pure, so you love. know,
2: do or do not, um, there is no try, so, no, it's, it's. Uh, but I've been listening to a couple of those, and what I used to, what I've been trying to get back into um, is this Rewind podcast that I need to go back, and okay. again, I've been trying to figure out if there's new episodes of. And it starts with this premise that isn't Star Wars related, um, that, uh, like, what's this? Uh, oh, it's future, is it future perfect. I think that's what it is. Um, I'll, I'll tweet it out later if I figure out what it is. And the idea is that it starts with the premise of the future and has a short little, you know, skit about it. And then the, the podcaster is basically this investigative journalist who goes into saying, okay, let's say living underwater. What would that actually mean? And she goes through this whole history and ended up, I ended up finding out that apparently we had this whole program um, during the Apollo space program called the Aquanaut program where we sent human beings down to the bottom of the ocean and had them drinking helium, breathing helium. And they had like called the president in the White House and he couldn't understand them because their voices were so high pitched. (laughs) Um, And they were like giving this, and apparently one of them one of the Aquanauts was also an astronaut. Like he went to space and to the bottom of the ocean and said that the, being an aquanaut was more dangerous. And so like, had no idea, had no idea. So lots of things like that.
1: That's, that's awesome. It's that's almost like a through line. I guess no through line, it's it kind of uh, how we got here and where we were and almost had a through line for the future. That, okay, so um, what are you watching? Are you binging stuff, movies? Like what, what are you watching these days?
2: So I've um, binged two things recently. One is the, again, because I'm a nerd, I've always been a Star Wars guy, not a Star Trek person, but I have broken from the mold and now watched a lot of Star Trek Voyager, um, which is like amazing. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think what I like about it is that there's a problem and then a group of people from all over the world come together and mm-hmm, fix, fix it, it. And then it's done by the end of each episode. <laughs> and I'm like, how what a comforting thought. Um, <laughs> And then the other thing I've been binging uh, was the, the high fidelity. Um, oh yeah, on I haven't Ulu. seen it yet. Is it good? It's really good. It's really good. And it's interesting how they both reference the original film, um, which I went back and watched and realized how insufferable the main character really is. <laughs> and um, and and then also they tweak it just slightly, just so in really interesting ways and in really cool ways for the show. Um, and it's just like really well acted and I, I was unsatisfied with the conclusion, but I think that was the point.
1: Um,
2: uh, so, so anyway, I've been binging that as well.
1: That's great. All right, folks. Um, I'm so glad you could join us, Jack. Um, uh, uh Jack can be found uh, on his website, JackJenkins.me. Twitter is Jack M Jenkins. Instagram is Jack Jenkins. He's on Facebook on his page. His author's page is Jack is writing. We'll post all of those in the show notes, uh, on the podcast and the recording on YouTube. Thank you, man, for coming.
2: Thanks so much for having me. This yeah, is super I'm glad, fun.
1: I'm glad you could be here. And congratulations on the book. Um, I'm hoping folks are going to pick it up and read it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. We were, uh, we were joking earlier about um, Stephen Colbert just basically saying, I didn't read it, but so what does it say? Uh, but I, 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 was, I read it, and I'm like, this is great. Um, I'm so thrilled. Um, I think I'm old enough that I could say proud of you. I don't know if, that's, if that actually <laughs> – but I, appreciate I just, that. Um, I'm from you. you know, I, when I, I've, I've had the pleasure of kind of seeing that trajectory for you. And so I'm glad that we could reconnect during this time. So thank yeah. you for being thank here. You. All right. And those thank of you, so you um, those of you that are tuned in, feel free to follow uh, uh, me and the church as well as come back next week when we will, when I will have a conversation with Liz Theo Harris, a the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Until next week, we'll see you later. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via BRCANDFRIENDS. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. For the
0: one standing guard, for the eagle eyed. For the Knights in shining armor. And for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner. Offering supplies and solutions for every industry, committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call slash safety or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime
1: hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard.
0: We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on.
2: How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.